because I'm invested in this country. I love this country. I love the principles we're founded on. And so many of those principles have been violated that I had to speak up. And I questioned how an administration can be so woke that, that they cancel us, their own citizens, for something we said 20 years ago. But they won't cancel the Taliban for cutting our heads off for 20 years. I wonder how you, how does that jive? Uh, and, and so I find it immensely important that we gather, that we share these values. Um, because if the opposition is free to say all that they do against the institution that created their freedom to speak in the first place, what is it that's inhibiting us? Is it fear? Are we afraid of being canceled? And I suggest that each one of you, um, uh, by all means, be excited about tonight. But you should be more excited about tomorrow. You should be more excited about leaving here and making a positive impression on other people. Not a polarized, angry impression, but the kind of impression that says we stand for love and compassion. Now, as, as a career Green Beret, would you guess that I fought for love and compassion the whole time. I love freedom, and I have compassion for the human condition anywhere on the planet. Is it different for you? No. You're here to fight for America. Welcome to Season 4 of the Right Idea Podcast. I'm Kevin Nicholson, Volunteer President and CEO of No Better Friend Corp. The theme for this season is Fight for America. In this seventh episode of season four, we feature an interview with retired Sergeant First Class Greg Stubbe. Greg is a retired Green Beret who spent 23 years in the Army as a medic in the Special Forces. During combat operations in the Global War on Terror in 2006, Greg was wounded in Afghanistan during Operation Medusa. Greg's wounds were severe and seemed fatal, but he survived. He endured 17 surgeries and an 18-month hospital stay. Our No Better Friend Corps team was honored to host Greg and Nina for our Fight for America rally on Veterans Day in 2021, where we had about 500 people join us to hear his story. In today's episode, Greg talks about his motivation to enlist in the United States Army, even though his dad was a career Navy man, his experience as a Green Beret, ranging from his time learning the Russian language to his time at the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center in school to his time in combat. He also shares his thoughts on the Biden administration's horrific and botched withdrawal from Afghanistan this past summer. I hope you enjoy the conversation. It's a meaningful one. This is the Right Idea Podcast. Well, welcome to meet everybody into the Right Idea Podcast. This is Kevin Nicholson. I'm here with Sergeant First Class Retired Greg Stubbe. Greg, welcome to Wisconsin. Welcome to Nina. Thank you very much. Proud to be here. We're thrilled to have you. So, and we have you here on a special event, special day. We're here on Veterans Day. So we appreciate you coming in. We're expecting a big crowd out here. We're, we're actually might, our listeners might hear some of the uh, setup noise happening in the background, but we're expecting hundreds of people to show up relatively soon. And uh, it's going to be a great event with your yourself, Mark Geist um, and Scott Pressler and uh, Joe Gigante, a local radio host who's a great friend of ours and a great advocate for, frankly, for just common sense. So we're thrilled. I'm in good company. You are in good company. <laughs> so talk uh, talk to our listeners a bit about your service to our country in the United States Army. So first, I got to ask the question. I'm a Marine. You're a soldier. Your dad was Navy. 
It sounds like you pushed it to go Navy, but you broke ranks and you went Army. How did it happen? Well, um, yeah, it broke his heart. It, okay. it really did. It hurt him. And uh, But I really wanted to be Rambo. I did. <laughs> I did. What year was it that you went in? 88. Okay, that'd be prime time for Rambo. Yeah, it was. It was a, it was a heavy influence. Right. And, and and I can't honestly say, you know, when people look at me and they, they look at my military career and they think that I was so courageous, but I signed up thinking about a movie. Right. And and these people that have been signing up for the last 20 years, they're, they're raising their right hand to go straight into war that is killing people. That's true. And, and so the... I'm really proud of what I see around us, uh, and it compels me to do a lot of what I do now. Awesome. Talk a bit about what you do to stay involved and and to keep the fight going forward, because that's the whole theme of our event tonight and of this podcast series as part of the Right Idea podcast is Fight for America, because it it is worth fighting for. It is, and and I don't get to do enough of this. I have been so looking forward to this event because, for me, this solidifies that civil-military handshake. This is the reason we're in it. We all have core values, and freedom looks a certain way to us. That's why it's worth fighting for and even dying for. And this is where I get to be myself among friends with with no agenda outside of the things that we fought for in the first place. Right. And that's it. It's, it's why we do these physical events. We do large scale messaging too to reach people and say, hey, here are some great ways to get involved and fight for the future of the country. But we do these physical events because it matters when you get together with community and you sit next to your neighbors, your friends, your family, people you've never met before, and you hear good ideas. That's how you percolate good ideas. That's how you arm people to go out there and take the fight for it themselves too. If we're not doing that, you know, we see it coming from the left. They go to communities, unfortunately, and do damage to them and put people that live there in worse positions. Our goal, and, and no better friend, and amongst the conservative movement is to empower people. And that's why we get them together. We share good ideas and then give them those good ideas to take forward in life, which is why we're thrilled to have you here. Well, thank you so much. There's, there's nowhere I'd rather be today. And, and I, I don't say that for your benefit. Um, it's a high demand day. It's one of several holidays in the year where I get a lot of requests. Right. But this is an opportunity for for me to really let loose with the things I believe right. among true friends right. instead of uh, a general hodgepodge of people that... And I guess maybe I'm spoiled because tonight I know I'm amongst friends. You will be amongst friends. Um, sometimes you're not sure and, and if you say the wrong thing you can wind up on CNN very quickly uh, well that's always possible because you never know who's buried in the crowd that's right phone and all the rest of it but but that's okay um, but no there's going to be again hundreds of people here I know that are looking for words of inspiration and, and I know that you'll be able to share those which is why we're excited I want to talk to me so you decide to go army you, as you said you broke your dad's heart wanted to be Rambo you end up as a Green Beret, Special Forces in the Army. And this is interesting, right? I don't know if all our listeners know this. Like, Marines, and I'm, I'm going to admit, like, we don't always... So you're a Marine, you're kind of a Marine. It's just kind of the way it is. And yes, we had recon. It is developed into more of a Special Forces unit within the Marine Corps. Traditionally, that's been alien to our culture. We don't always understand that in the Army, you really do have very different communities. And you have to make that decision. You want to go from Big Army, you want to go to Rangers, you want to go to Special Forces, Green Beret, Task Force Orange. Talk to me about that process that led you to Green Berets. Uh, for me, I really enjoyed uh, 
the idea of international relations. I really enjoyed the idea of learning a foreign language and, and going places with a small number of people and no adult supervision. <laughs> That's an excellent way of putting it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and I can't really say that I had an aversion to authority, but I, but I think freedom of operations, what it, what it said to me was they're really going to have to train me and build confidence in me in order for me to operate on that plane, uh, often independently with a small group of people. Right. Uh, I didn't know they were going to make me a medic, though. And that made life a little harder. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, how do you teach a redneck how to do surgery and <laughs> anesthesia? Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's almost yeah. as awkward as being in a, in a classroom for Russian language. Right. Uh, so I was right. drinking through a fire hose for a couple of years, trying to take it all in and, and learn it. And I thought that if I could just get the Green Beret, if I could get to that point, make it, then everything would be gravy. Right. And I had no idea that that that's where the difficulty only began <laughs> because you can no longer hide once you once you take a position as something that's recognized right you can't hide from that and you have a, a really great responsibility to live up to that each day Same. and people are going to count on you to save the day and your needs have to go on the back burner right. and you have to put others first right yeah i think that's actually a good point like the the training that you go through and the expectations are so high amongst your peer group. And their expectation is that you know your business back and forth because when push comes to shove, yes, we're all trained trained in some type of expedient uh, first aid capabilities, but you're the guy that, no kidding, is gonna get people out alive when the damage is pretty severe. And so the expectations are extremely high for you knowing backward and forward your, your space. It is. Yep. Expectations in that arena are you know, it's zero defects when it comes down to operation time. Right. And nobody's ever perfect. We're all human. We right. do make mistakes. Of course. But you're expected to have the highest caliber right. uh, to bring to the table. Uh, it's, it's, uh, and the testosterone levels are so high. <laughs> they can you know, get pretty high, like, that's for sure. It's like swimming with sharks, praying not yeah. to bleed. Right. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. But it pushes you, right? It makes you really, like, you're reminded, like, um, you're constantly reminded what the expectation are and is rather, and um, and that's good because it does drive you to make sure you're on on top of things at all times. I was very slow to mature, and that would have to change if I was going to stay there. Yeah, for sure. And you sure. And I would have gone in the Marines, but they, they were looking for a few good men. Apparently, <laughs> no, no. Well, it worked out pretty well for me. Ended up in a pretty good spot. So some of the spy, I want to talk about Afghanistan a bit. Obviously, you've been to Afghanistan. Are you able to share or do you want to share some of the other spots that you visited around the world? No, it doesn't matter to me. Okay. I, you know, the, there's no discussion of classified anything, sure. just broaching subjects. And I'm not, I was never that absolute secret squirrel anyway. <laughs> um, and, I, and, and, I, and I try not to throw off that perception. I always say, beware of the secret guy that tells you he's secret. <laughs> I, but I've had so many conversations with Special Forces, and I was like, no, I can't tell you, I can't tell you. So oh, I geez. always just say, if you're okay with telling me, tell me. If you can't, you can't. But I appreciate where you're coming from. No. So we're having some of the stops. Well, uh, you know, for me, be, being selected for Russian language meant that I had to be assigned to a group that had a regional orientation okay. to a place that uses Russian. Mm -hmm. So, and that is spread out a little bit, you right. know. 
uh, up through Indochina and all that stuff. They speak Russian. Um, so there is some some crossover, but, but I wound up going to 10th Special Forces Group, okay. which is European theater. Okay. So our people, they learn Czech, Polish, Russian, German, French, so that we can get along anywhere throughout Europe. Got it. Got it. And uh, team size, talk to me about that. So I'm used to, I was a lieutenant, I drop into a platoon, I got a roughly 35 size Marine unit, um, on up to a company, you got a couple hundred people, and on up to a battalion. But special forces usually breaks down into smaller units, and you tend to be extremely tight with that team for extended periods of time. But talk to me about how the structure is set up. Uh, the most people we'll ever have on a team is 12. Okay. Um, more often, we have nine or ten, sometimes eight or seven. Uh, it's just very, very hard to keep the force filled when the training requirements are so big so and, and the attrition rate is so high. So right. it's hard to get people in and keep them in, keep them good and healthy right. with no show-stopping personal problems. Right. Uh, there's so many issues uh, about being human right. that, that can keep your team from being its best. No, it's true. I um, I think that was one of the shocks is you were your senior enlisted leadership. I was a young officer. I got out as captain. It I try to explain this to people. It the whole job. Yes, there's all sorts of technical elements that you need to master, but the job is people leadership, 110. percent And unfortunately, a fair amount of the job ends up being like what you're doing in off hours and how do we keep you ready to do your job professionally and make good decisions, just like general life, like make good decisions and people. You know, when you see these pictures of these young soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen, you, in your mind's eye, they always look like Rambo, right? Like, that's where a lot of people, but they are 18 to 22-year-old right. young adults. and right. um, with poor judgment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of things in development, right? Yeah. And so, yes, you come back into work on Monday morning, and you'd have some conversations about what happened over the weekend, and you'd say, how did this happen again? <laughs> you know, and you love these guys. And you'll want them to be successful in life. But then, of course, you have to do the stuff which, you know, senior enlisted and officers have to do. There's got to be discipline, structure. And to your point, like keeping people in a constant state of readiness for what might come next is not easy to do. Especially, I got to think, in your units because, like, we had this structured deployment cycle. Like, we're going in six, five, four, three, two, one, go. Whereas, at a moment's notice, you could be deploying into a situation. And that's not easy to do. No, for us, we always had to be packed and ready. Yep. And you'd get a call. And when you got the phone call, it was one hour. Yeah. One hour and you got to be in the team room. And you don't know if it's a training exercise, uh, but you could be locked down into isolation as soon as you get there. Yep. And then you're in a planning session that could last 48 hours. It could last seven days. Right. And then you're not going home after that either. You're getting right. on the next thing smoking out of town right. to execute the plan you just constructed as a team. Right. Yeah. So you got to have people that um, have that level of responsiveness, responsibility, and then just mental and personal like readiness. And you know what it did? Working in an environment where everyone had to meet that standard to mm -hmm. be there. And every team was, we fought to be so competitive. We yeah. needed to be picked for that next mission. Right. We wanted it to be us. Let me go die. Right. <laughs> what? That's your mentality, right? Like it's, Heck, the thought is, like, I didn't do all this for nothing. Right, right. right. Like, I mean, we are here to to take the fights in the enemy and to, to solve whatever the problem is. And we want to do it. And so my appreciation has grown over the years because I recognize 
that as hard as some people think that is, it's a mindset. It's it's a certain way of life. But, you know, it spoiled me because everyone had their stuff straight and they'd all made it to that caliber. I didn't have to deal with all the problems. And I recognize more and more as life goes on that your challenges as a commander went so far beyond that because all of the personal issues in each Marine's life, Mm -hmm. if not managed properly, could become something that turned them non-deployable. And now your fighting force is diminishing and and you're having to manage herd kitty cats all the time and be technically and tactically proficient to command your unit in the battle space. Right. To achieve the mission, and then as I, as we all know, achieve the mission, that is number one, number two, bring them all home. And um, sometimes God intercedes in a way you can't see, and you, you don't get to achieve both those things. Um, but that is it. That is your whole mentality. It is achieve the mission, number one, and number two, take care of your troops and bring them home. And, uh, I, you know, and I'm sure, you know, that's the thing, right? As a, a leader in the military, it's incredibly important, and it always was to me, that every person serving with me and under me understood, like, that is my emphasis. If I have to come down hard on you, it is because that is what truly matters. And at the end of the day, I want to bring us home victorious as we can within the construct of the mission. But I sure as hell don't want to be writing a letter that we didn't have to write if, if, if the mistake is avoidable through training and readiness. I think Those are the consequences. If I'd been a commander, there'd only be one thing I'd ever say. It'd be a question. Do you know what we're here for? Right. Right. I've asked that question. If right? you do, <laughs> then you'll change your methods here. Exactly right. And we won't be talking about this next Monday and et right. cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I love my Marines and, and I and I served with soldiers, sailors, airmen, and um, I just I had a very great experience with the people I worked with. And to your point, like you in some ways, yes, you get frustrated, but other ways you're just spoiled by the type of people and the ethos they have. And um and it sticks with you. And when you leave the service, it can be a bit of culture shock as you're trying to reimmerse with people. And some, you know, obviously, one many wonderful people, but some of whom don't necessarily share your uh, sense of mission about what we're all supposed to be working towards. That yeah. I, I experienced a very high pass rate in special forces mm-hmm. for guys that came from force recon. Okay. We had a lot of people who changed branches. Changed branches, right. Uh, they came from Force Recon, and they knew suck very well. <laughs> yeah, course, they teach you. They understood <laughs> very well, and so it, they didn't get their feelings hurt as easily, well, usually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we do a good job in the Marine Corps, I think, of stripping away all your feelings. <laughs> so yeah. You just and don't I, care anymore. And I've always been jealous of that. Uh, all right, confession. All right, I'm ready. I've been jealous that all the Marines are just so, they stick to it. Even if they only did two years for the rest of their life, that's what they brag about. They're a Marine. They're a Marine. And I'm thinking, come on, where, where does that level of esprit de corps come from? And, and as I think about it, if you go to an Air Force recruiter, an Army recruiter, a Navy recruiter, they'll offer you college money. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll offer you loan repayment. They'll offer you all kinds of special this and that. Right. But the Marine Corps recruiters, they offer you one thing and one thing only, and it's the opportunity to become a Marine. If you make and, you're, 
And you're right. a Marine first. No right. matter what your skill is in the Marine Corps, right. you're you're a damn Marine. Right. And that's where everything starts, and that's where it ends. No, it's true, and, and you're right. And I have, incred- and I'm not just saying this. I have, we amongst the services love to give each other a hard time because that's fun to do, and there's plenty of things to poke fun at. But I have incredible respect for each of the services and all the capacity they bring to bear. Again, great to have Air Force birds on your shoulder. They're incredible professionals. The breadth of things that the United States Army can do, there's no fighting force like in the world in terms of just diversification capabilities. It's massive, it's huge. What the largest Air Force in the world exists in the United States Army, and people don't even realize that. Again, Navy, all these different capabilities um, from, again, flight to literally surface warfare, it's quite incredible. And what attracted me in the Marine Corps was the best fit for me was I loved that the recruiter was like, yeah, you can try. Like, good luck. Hope it works out. <laughs> and we'll kick you out if we can. Um, and I think that that's been, you know, and the Marines will train you as a pilot and then send you to a B billet and you won't keep your hours and you'll never fly again. And they don't really care because ultimately if they wanted you to do something else, that's the way it is. If that works for the Marine Corps, it would not be good if the Air Force or the Army was doing that with their pilots. So, but it's a different, it's a different approach. It is, but it's a strong it is. approach, and it ensures there's there's strength and esprit de corps, absolutely, and honor. Yes, and it sticks with you. And even if you all cause crayon eaters and whatever else, we can handle that. <laughs> yeah, I experienced that on smaller levels, but never branch wide, which is like fair. the Marine Corps enjoys. That's fair. I did. I did. Uh, uh, have a, a Marine Corps edition of my book when I wrote it, but I had to discontinue it because I didn't have a disclaimer in it that said the crayons <laughs> attached to the back. I was just waiting. They're not flavors. <laughs> they're just colors. I was waiting. I was waiting. I knew it was coming, but now it hit. So that's okay. I knew it was coming. Tell me, let's talk. Um, uh, we'll move away from crayons and we'll move to Afghanistan and talk to me about your experience in Afghanistan. When you were there and and what your unit was doing and how it went. Okay, my, you know, my remarkable experience in Afghanistan was in 2006. Uh, and I went there um, as a pre-retirement mission. Because you were at 22? Yeah, okay. no, at th- then I was, I was approaching 20. You were approaching 20, okay. Right, this yeah. would have been my last deployment. Okay. Uh, and I was going on a civil affairs mission as a special forces advisor okay. to them. And uh, I was one of the last Green Berets uh, to go with civil affairs. They have ramped up their training so much they don't need Green Berets anymore. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they're right. amazing capabilities because you can't shoot your way to any lasting victory. Oh, yep. You have to use civil yep. affairs to incorporate a peaceful structure that they can live with right. in their own culture. And right. so, in any event... I, while I was there, two of my former students from the Special Forces training program when I was You're an instructor, right. they were running towards me outside the mess hall in Kandahar, Afghanistan. And they said, hey, you, you got to come with us on this mission. Can you can you go? Yep. And I'm like, guys, I'm here for something else. And then immediately, you know, they're talking about, man, we're up against the hordes on this one. We really need you. And uh and I was looking at them, remembering that I was running them through the woods. Mm-hmm. I was training them in blood, sweat, and tears, preaching at them from the podium about what will be required of them and what yeah. they'll be asked to do. And then could I really say no without trying right. to go with them? Right. Uh, so I went okay. and uh, 
be careful what you ask for. Because yeah, right. uh, I, I went into Operation Medusa. Okay. We, had, we had a Canadian theater commander at the time who had just taken over, and we had had a lot of casualties in the previous year. Okay. All in Canada Province? Pretty much, yes. Okay. Specifically, Panjway Valley okay. was the real problem area. With as many casualties as we had taken, the Canadian commander came in very, very strong and robust. Nobody expected it. He was an artillery commander. And when he took charge, he said, we're going to do something and change the future. If I'm going to be in command here, we're going to take control of it. So this became the largest NATO offensive since the Normandy invasion. And I didn't know this. Yes. I was in Afghanistan not long after you. Right. So So, uh, it... For us, it turned into the Battle of Spurwin Gar. So as NATO forces surrounded this valley, um, they chartered three of our A-teams to run up the middle and flush the Taliban out, and the blocking force would get them. Simple plan. Yeah. Sounds great. It sounds like a great plan. Right. (laughs) Except we ran upon uh, this hilltop called Spurwin Gar, and we met resistance, and, and there are 30 American guys there surrounded by over a thousand Taliban suddenly. And we ran out of ammunition four times in five days. And uh, it was it was really tough. So we had to fight our way through that. There just wasn't another way. We had to fight and keep fighting. And it was then that I learned just how valuable the other branches were. There had been times where, you know, Marines would go into this hornet's nest Mm -hmm. and just swarm the place with overwhelming force and rapid movement that we didn't have the people right. or the firepower to do. you constructed to do, right? Exactly. Right. And right. without the Marines, we never could have accomplished our objectives. And then, and then my butt is being saved by Air Force personnel yeah. at 30,000 feet. My butt's being saved by support personnel who are packing a parachute on a pallet of ammo mm-hmm. that has my blood attached to it. <laughs> if I don't get it, I'm going to die. Right. And so my awareness was growing. Uh, I had a steep learning curve because I had become so arrogant. Yeah. And I thought I was the heat. I'm the one. We, we have all been there. And sometimes, yes, it takes experience to open the mind and realize yeah. it takes the full construct. And then I got blown up and burned and shot in a short, short period of time, in a moment. And um, third degree burns, you know, over 30% of my body and uh, lost 70% of my intestines. I had a foot and ankle blown off. Um, and it landed me in the hospital for a year and a half. And, uh, and then I had people wiping my butt for me. I was no longer the the big strong green beret that I thought I would be forever, apparently. And now people were taking care of me in excruciatingly intimate and personal ways. And they were using love and compassion to be able to do their job and serve me in ways that I'd never served anyone else. And it was humiliating. It was embarrassing. It was a time where I was reckoning and bargaining and begging and pleading with God. How could you still accept me after the way I've been living? The realization was just so strong. Uh, and it changed the way I live. And I don't think I ever want to go back. I'd, I'd go through all that again just to have the wake-up call. Yeah. And, and, and I, 
I still screw it up. You know, I swore at the time, please, God, let me live. I'll never do this again. I'll always do that. No. No, I'm still a turd. <laughs> but, you, <laughs> but you're trying. I am. And I know the difference and I know the value of loving other people right. and recognizing their greatness instead of celebrating my own. Because right. if I'm great, they'll say so. And then I still shouldn't believe it. Because <laughs> most of us can't see the good in other people until there's something in it for us. Yeah, that's true. And we have to overcome so much of our humanity just to be decent people. It's perspective. And it uh, and, and, and I didn't have anything close to your experience. But I will say what combat impressed upon me was the fragility of life and how quickly it can be extinguished. And that when you take this step back and, and really walk away understanding how bad things can get and how quickly they can get bad, like make every moment count. Do try to keep things in perspective, uh, understanding the importance that just the, the um, like I always say, like one of the things that made me more pro-life and just in general, and the protection of innocent life is seeing life thrown away. And you really do come to understand like the obligation we have to our fellow man to do what we can um, to put them in a better position. Yeah. I spent seven years in and out of Bosnia and Kosovo. And I got there at the tail end of their five-year civil yep. war. In my 20s now, I'm witnessing genocide. Yeah. And I'm seeing what it's like to have millions of landmines still in the ground, children being maimed and killed by them when they return to their homes, right. um, people still shooting each other out of hate, right. no organized criminal justice system, uh, the economy wasn't set up, any restaurant that was open was actually depending on roadkill because there yeah. was no supply. Right. Uh, and, and after living through that at that young age, now, surviving it myself, and being healthy afterwards with a good perspective, that was another story. Right. Because my survival mechanism was to convince myself and other people I was 10 feet tall and bulletproof. Mm -hmm. But I never was. Inside, things were eating away at me and, and breaking me down. And I would have to deal with that at yeah. some point. Um, but you have compassion for the human condition. Right. It's what we're in it for. A hundred percent. And... Um for better or for worse in life, like sometimes you have to see how bad it can get to fully conceptualize these things. And But that's why we do conversations like this because not everybody's gonna have the experience that you did, not everyone's gonna have the experience that I did, but there's an obligation we have to share with others and hopefully they can they can learn something from it too. In our commonality. Right, exactly. It's incredible what our absolute commonalities are. 100%. I have told this story a few times, and I'm sure you've, you've had similar interactions. I always tell people, Afghanistan is a funny place. Like, uh, you need to ask a question about 13 times to get to the truth. Um, and then there's different gradations of the truth, right? And so <laughs> you're smiling at me. You know this. I the remember, culture. Yeah, it's, it's a something. I was, uh, I had a counter IED team in Afghanistan. We were in Maywan, so we weren't far from, from Kandahar proper. And um, the way they fought at the time I was there was, you know, it's very flat in that part of the country. It was all IEDs. And we had a counter, I ran a counter IED team. So we were like the quick reaction force for the ID events. So get the people building them and then also get the devices and do act, do basically do evac when people get struck. And so so we were moving a lot, a lot of devices in the ground. And um, we had a detonation one day where uh, it was at the end of a long driveway to a compound. And you could see where the crater was, right in the middle of the driveway. And then you could see where the 
wheels for the car had been avoiding that crater for about, I don't know, six weeks or so. So I, I pulled out the, uh, the elder of the compound and said, hey, how did you avoid this <laughs> for that long? And he said, you know, inshallah, God took care of us. We're very fortunate. And <laughs> you're shaking your head. So as I asked him again, I said, well, that seems unlikely. It seems like, you know, you had some very good fortune. And I'd love to know how and why you you didn't come to us and tell us it was there. Because we would have come and removed the device from your from your driveway. And I had to do this about 10 times, alter an interpreter. Eventually, he broke down. And he, I wouldn't say he broke down. He, he just kind of a moment of truth. And he looked me in the eye and he said, look, right now the Taliban's watching us. And they're watching me talk to you. They will come later. They will threaten my children's lives. They will take our food. And if I were to help you in advance of this detonation, they would have killed me and my children. So what would you do? And it's in that moment that you come to realize that we were fighting. I mean, I knew this before and you did too, but you're fighting a war in such a gray fog um, where a combination of culture, terrain, and history lack of lack of, you know, national unity, just make it such a baseline confused environment where it's so hard to take clear steps forward in progress. Yeah, there's no front line. Right. And there's no uniformed soldiers that you confront. Right. Right. So there's, how do you, how do, you do that when, when embedded in the culture is a lack of honesty to begin with? Because lying is part and parcel. And, and, and it just makes me so grateful for, for our Christian values in this right. country. Right, 100%. And the, our Christian values, I think I pointed that direction forward towards truth. Again, it doesn't mean we're all achieving that every moment and every day, but it means that we are being pushed to do that. And the one of the things that, again, I think a lot of local national Afghans face is, is a system of life and government and structure and where you're constantly just trying to make it to the next day. And if that means you got to lie to do it, you'll do that because the alternative is pretty terrible in the way that things can go bad. Um, There's not an honorable resource or recourse for them. Right. They have to deal with brutal consequences from absolute power being wielded and no checks in place. Right. Exactly. One of the things um, I've asked of many Afghan veterans, Afghanistan veterans, is... Uh, about the conduct of the, the war in general, and, and I'll lay on the line, my, and feel free to disagree, I'll just let you know where kind of I come at this. I, I always said my team, every mission, every day, understood like what the point of that mission was. Like we were gonna go out, X, Y, Z, we're gonna get back, here's our plan to return to base, et cetera, et cetera. They, they, day to day, I made sure they knew what to do. But when it came to that strategic objective, what are we doing here for 20 years, and what does the end state look like that achieves victory? That is where I personally could not say to my soldiers, sailors, airmen and Marines, like, here's what that end state is at a strategic level. And I feel like the politicians and the generals and so many others who had us there, they didn't know what that was either. But feel free to disagree as a fellow Afghan said, but what are your thoughts? As an Afghan vet, it, as a veteran, as an American, I think it's frustrating to tread water for 10 years with no forward movement. Right. Uh, when you're treading water, you're stationary and, and harmful things can come your direction. Right. You become strictly reactive. Right. 
not proactive, which begs the question, like we have a mission each day, Mm -hmm. there should be a concise mission just like that for the whole span of being there. Right. Yes. We're in for this reason. We achieve this objective and we get out. Right. And I didn't see that. And in special forces, I have to tell you, it's even maybe not even more frustrating, but it's supremely frustrating to me knowing what our capabilities were. Right. And we spent so much time not doing those things that could have advanced the real objectives for being there. Right. And there you're talking, and I won't put words in your mouth, but strategic strike capabilities gave you key key leaders in various places to really cut the head off the animal. Look what we did in the first two weeks of being there with just a couple teams. Exactly. Can you imagine if we would have just continued that effort? Right. And that level of of intensity was necessary. No, I, I could not agree more. And that's, again, I think that's why these conversations are important. And I try to share it in my public remarks always, which is, we as American people need to hold our political class to a higher bar in the sense of, if you want to deploy our sons and daughters to combat, okay, in about a sentence, you should be able to say, here's the objective. And it should be eyeball to eyeball, this is what we believe the objective should be, and I'd send my kids on this fight too. And if they can't do that, and they can't really get that level of clarity, then they need to pump the brakes hard and say, stop, we need to figure this out before we go any further. And Afghanistan that just kind of rolled into this idea of let's create a westernized republic amongst a group of people who don't want that. Um, this is, again, my words, not yours, but in every interaction I had, for the most part, Afghan nationals didn't really view Afghanistan as a country. It was, you know, they cared about their family and their clan. They didn't necessarily care even about the next province, let alone this concept of a nation. So it begs the question and, and makes me think of the Afghan withdrawal also. Yep. Sure. Uh, sorry, I went there. No, no. Let's um, talk about it. As, as a part of this whole notion of staying true to your roots, why do you do what you do? What is your mission? What is your vision? Right. What are your values, your purpose? Right. Um, we, don't, we don't forsake human life. We put an extremely high value on each human life. Right. And that's part of the, the methodology for how and why we should do everything we do. Right. Not to remain in place as a target. Exactly. And then upon withdrawal, who... Who said that it was ever okay to leave people behind? And, yeah. and it's not a military thing, leave no one behind. No, yeah. that is an American exactly. principle because we take care of, uh, and, and, and this is a far cry different from other places in the world I've seen. If we have a terminally ill child, we don't consider it wasting resources on them to keep them alive and give them a quality of life. Right. We'll spend a fortune to make each minute till their last breath as good as it can possibly be right. out of charity because right. we love each other. And suddenly it's okay to leave people behind. By the thousand. And, and, and sacrifice the uh, lives of 13 service members that were put in an untenable position. Um, I just... the. If anyone ever came, I, I keep asking audiences this, but they were coming to you with a plan that said, the first step of the plan is that we're going to overnight vacate Bagram Airfield, our our military controlled airfield, our in our inbound and outbound entry port, and then after we vacate it, then we'll conduct an extraction of the entire country. What would you have done? Can you? I mean, but what I just said happened. It, it really happened. 
I still can't. I still can't believe it. I know. Yeah, I still can't believe it. So, and and part of part of what upset me also, and I haven't had much discussion about this, but it it hit me hard, and I and I haven't heard anyone else talking about it. The the whole ISIS K thing. Yeah. So, so you tell me from your experience. You you've got your perimeter. You you're inside the wire, and outside that wire are threats, known threats. Right. It, how important is it to you? whether it's ISIS-K or Taliban, Al-Qaeda, if it's a threat, they're not wearing a uniform. But the thing they have in common is they all want to kill you. Right. And so at the time of the withdrawal, it was being brought out, well, the Taliban are okay. They're working with us. It's ISIS-K we got to look out for. And they hate the Taliban just as much as we do, even though they made it through the Taliban perimeter and blew us up. It doesn't seem to have the equality. No lie. That was suggested. So right. so it makes me believe that they threw up ISIS-K as a red herring to make us all feel better about the alignment with the right. Taliban. And in the day and age that we have a woke administration that will cancel you yeah. for something you said 20 years ago when you are a fellow countryman, right. they're aligning with a brutal terrorist organization that has been cutting our heads off right. for 20 years. Right. Why aren't they canceling the Taliban? That's a good question. And this distinction you bring up, too, I think is a, it's a great point to make because this artificial distinction between ISIS gay and the Taliban, like, sure, week by week, that gang member might call itself a member of a different gang. But, I mean, think of American politics and all the sordid nastiness of that. We'll drop that into a bunch of gangs operating in a, a you know, less than third world country. And guess what? Those lines between those organizations are not hard and clean cut. They do collaborate, given on the moment, and, and they frankly exchange members depending on the day. So that whole narrative that, that I think you're accurately describing of like State Department coming out and saying that we're aligned to Taliban, who at the very least the Taliban had members, they had members of that government that were involved in the 9-11 planning. And you know, for all the talk, we'll never forget, here we are. And the United States government, Biden administration, has aligned themselves with people that did perpetrate the 9-11 attack. And then, to your point, props up ISIS-K as the new bad guys for like a couple of weeks. I haven't heard that lately. It's a red herring. Exactly. It's right. uh, See, Americans, you don't have to feel so bad about the Taliban. They're our friends now. It's ISIS-K we got to worry about. Hey, and let's release all the prisoners uh, before we leave so that they can attack us and kill us first. The whole thing is... For, for people like yourself, myself, and so many others who serve in this, in this country, or just in general, it's so mind-bending that it's impossible. Again, the argument I'm making, and I don't think it's the argument you're making, is not stay in Afghanistan forever. No. It, it's If an extract was to be conducted, never in a million years would this be the way it would be done. We know how to do that. Right. We know, but right. we weren't allowed. One thing, I wrote a... An article just published uh, yesterday on serialized gear. Talk to me about serialized gear in the military. How big of a deal is it if you lose a piece of serialized gear? Are you kidding me? <laughs> do you know the man hours that go into searching for one sensitive item? I a do. pair of night vision goggles, yeah. much less a weapon? You bet. How many tax dollars go into that search? And careers go down the drain for loss of accountability for one weapon, one set of night vision goggles, right. one radio. You bet. 
You bet. And lives will be risked to, to recover that those that type of material. Oh, you better believe it. Yep. And uh, and in in I yeah, in that article I wrote, I told about a time that we had a vehicle roll uh, pack two, uh, popped off someone's rifle. For, fortunately no one was hurt. Thing got impacted by the uh, the vehicle, so we couldn't find it, it was dead at night. We we RTV'd, we came back, we were sent out the next morning to find it, we did find it. But in that notion, we were going out in heavily IED territory. They saw us to find a PEQ too. Yep. Right. So that, yeah. How about that? And, uh, and what I tell people is juxtapose that and the reality that we lived against what the Biden administration did and the amount set aside for a moment, the lives that were lost. And then think about the fact they turned over an arsenal, including helicopters, machine guns, planes left to sworn enemies of the American people. It's, our careers would have been ended in a heartbeat for losing one one pair of NVGs. And here we are. It's insane. It's yeah. Insane. You lose one sensitive item. Yep. And you may never be promoted again. Absolutely. I think it's an important thing for us to share stuff like that because not everyone, again, we have a low, the lowest percentage of people uh, in America that have served in the military who just as a baseline know that. Like, that actually doesn't fly. Like, there's no world you can lose you can't lose sensitive items, period. And then to see what our government did and then pretend like that's perfectly okay. Don't worry about it. Nothing to see here. Move on to the next thing. It's it's crazy, and that's why we have these conversations. Well, Kevin, it's part of the reason that I'm here tonight exactly. is, is because it's about we the people. Right. And all is not lost because there's no one elected as president that mandates how we treat our neighbor. That's right. And, and our core values stay alive among us. And if we propagate that well enough and love each other well enough, our next leader will represent those values that's right. or they won't be able to keep the job. Yeah, that's right. Our next leader and just the American people, period, which is what it needs to come from the ground up. Yes. And uh, that's why it's so important to bring you to Nina to share this message to people, to have it reverberate well beyond tonight, um, as I know that it will. So that's actually a perfect place, uh, I think, to, to pause as we will we'll stop our podcast. But in about, I don't know what it is, like 90 minutes or so, we're going to have hundreds of people out in this room. And you're going to have the chance to share that message again. <laughs> so, Greg, thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming to Wisconsin, being here. Um, God bless you for doing it. It means a lot that you're carrying this message forward. Well, thank you, Kevin. On Veterans Day, it feels great to be a citizen. Absolutely. And, uh, Absolutely. I don't want it to be about veterans or Fort Bragg. I want it to be about Fort Living Room because right. without that, no one would be willing to fight or die for this country. That's the truth. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. And thank you to our audience on the Right Idea podcast. For those of you that might even be here tonight, we'll see you shortly and we'll see you in the next episode. Take care, everybody. I'm Kevin Nicholson. Thanks for joining us in the Right Idea podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the Right Idea podcast on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, Google, Ricochet, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts.